From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. COVID-19 mutates and people are left to wonder where they stand with masks, vaccines, life really. We'll get answers to your questions from a leading ICU pulmonologist. And if he sounds familiar, it's because he was on the show less than a month ago, helping us keep up with Delta variant news. Then how the impact of the virus differs almost from block to block. Later, there are one-star reviews of national parks. The first one I saw was Yellowstone. Save yourself some money, boil some water at home. (laughs) And um, that just prompted me to look on Yelp and Google and see what other reviews people had left for parks. Artist Amber Share's Subpar Parks Project became an Instagram hit. Now it's a book. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. COVID-19's Delta variant continues to bully its way into the daily conversation. Over the weekend, Los Angeles County in California reinstated a mask mandate even for people who are fully vaccinated. Cases are rising dramatically there. In Colorado, Governor Jared Polis recently ended his public health emergency order, but Delta's having a noticeable impact with rates that have doubled in less than a month here. And if you're trying to ground yourself in this ever-changing viral kaleidoscope, well, we've invited ICU pulmonologist Dr. Anuj Mehta back to the program. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thank you for having me. You were with us less than three weeks ago, and I think the hope was that by now there might be a better handle on things. Uh, Is there? Uh, unfortunately not. You know, I think that the with the way the CDC director described it as, um, you know, a pandemic of unvaccinated people, I think we're there. Um, I think there are some hospitals in the state um, in areas with low vaccination rates that are being heavily strained and they're seeing the most increase in numbers. And then in areas where there are not as many, um, where there's higher vaccination rates, we're just, we're not seeing as many, um, as much of an increase in caseload. So it's really a two-track pandemic right now. A two-track pandemic. Is there anything about the reopening of life, doctor, that you personally have pulled back on as a, I know, vaccinated person? Um, yeah, and a lot of it's influenced by the fact that I have, and I've mentioned this before, I have two kids who are not eligible yet for the vaccine. And so... You know, we're still not doing a ton. I um, wear a mask wherever I go, even into grocery stores, even though I'm vaccinated. And that's really to support my kids. You know, we're not keeping them at home. But when we go out um, to grocery stores or things like that, or even at the park where they're around other kids, I have them wear a mask because they're still vulnerable. There's still potential that they can get sick. And we're seeing growing data of increased hospitalizations in kids. And there was a report recently that kids that get COVID um, are really, um, you know, similar to adults at risk for those long collar symptoms. And 
So a lot of what I do is influenced by how I can best protect my family and also work to try and keep schools and um, daycares and camps open. Long haul kids is a thought that I don't cherish having for sure. Listener Dan Gravy of Wheat Ridge wants to know about young children's likelihood of contraction. Uh, He reached out on Twitter, and this is, of course, against the backdrop of back to school. Uh, Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's something we all need to be very cognizant of. Kids um, can get COVID. They can get sick from COVID. And really, unfortunately, kids can die from COVID. Um, We do see that it's a lot less than adults, but it's not nothing. Um, And kids that have weak immune systems, kids that may have asthma, you know, they may be more susceptible to it. Um, But any kid can get it. And it, you know, the impact is not just whether your kid is sick or not. Uh, My kids are in summer camp right now. And so um, if they were to get sick, their entire class has to quarantine. Similarly, when schools open, if a kid gets sick in a class, then everybody in that class is a close contact. But since they're not really doing the same isolation procedures that they did when we first opened schools, you can imagine the number of quote unquote close contacts who are not vaccinated. So I'm really concerned about the overall impact on um, on schools because right, the mental health impact of staying home for kids is really just t- terrible and traumatic. Um, and, you know, homeschooling has left so many people behind uh, in the last year. So my biggest concerns are, are actually for school with the uptick in the Delta variant, because even in vaccinated communities, it only takes one case. Only takes one case. Jen Burks of Fort Collins notes that some districts are already saying masks may be optional. And she wonders how parents with elementary age students who are indeed not old enough for the vaccine, can keep kids safe. Any any specific steps beyond what you've told us? Yeah. So my personal opinion uh, aligns with um, the CDC recommendations that kids that are going to school who are not vaccinated should be wearing masks. I am in personal support of a state mandate um, for kids in schools, both public and private and daycare settings that are above, you know, of, of the age where they could wear a mask to wear masks if they're um, not vaccinated. And again, you could take the extreme of that of every, all kids in schools should wear masks, but we know that some um, older kids can um, be vaccinated. I'm in strong support of that because I think that um, this is a population where, right, the vaccination rate in kids under, um, uh, under 12 is 0%. Um, so the potential to spread it is pretty, pretty high. Um, and Delta is far more contagious than the previous variants. And so it changes the, our calculus. Um, I've heard of so many, you know, anecdotal stories about people at a party where a few people were vaccinated. A lot of people weren't vaccinated. One person was sick and everybody that wasn't vaccinated got sick with COVID or at least tested positive. And none of the people that were vaccinated tested positive. So I think masks are really critical to how we envision reopening schools. And I do think that reopening schools is critical. In-person learning is critical. Um, and I think that's why the CDC has come out with that those guy, um, those recommendations. Um, but it, it is going to take, um, I think, either a local like DPS mandate or um, a statewide mandate. Well, I'm curious if, uh, just briefly, if you have conveyed that message to the state, because you've done some consulting with the state. I wonder, have, mm-hmm. you, have you given that message to, say, Dr. Rachel Hurley at the Department of Health or to the governor himself? Um, I've been working in the ICU for the last couple of weeks, so I haven't had the chance. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of people that have talked to me, even um, even in passing, kind of know my opinion of that. I haven't been shy about that. 
Also on Twitter, Josh Murbitz of Denver asks, how at risk are vaccinated people with the Delta variant and are the risks different depending on the vaccine you received? And doctor, we spoke to this briefly the last time you were on. Any new research on how each of the three vaccines is responding with Delta? Um, I think that Delta, um, the, the current vaccines in the U.S. are very effective against Delta. You may test positive, but the chances of getting sick the chances of being in the hospital and the chances of dying from COVID are exceedingly low if you have any of the vaccines available in the United States. Um, but we are seeing that, you know, there's an increase in the number of people that are not showing up for their second dose of, say, uh, Moderna or Pfizer, and where the, a single dose may have offered a little bit of protection against the original form of COVID. We have growing data that a single dose of, of Moderna or Pfizer is really offers no protection. So you need to be fully vaccinated. Mm. And once you're fully vaccinated, um, the chances of getting sick are really, really low. We have, of course, seen some breakthrough cases. And we've seen this touch, say, the Colorado Rockies, for instance, uh, including manager Bud Black. Um, And there's a story last week in the Boston Globe that talked about fully vaccinated people who have still died from COVID? Mm -hmm. I believe the number was 79. Will you help put those breakthrough cases into context, you know, contrasted to what you just told us about the the very good protection? So breakthrough cases exist. And as I said, you could still get COVID test positive, test positive um, um, after getting back, being fully vaccinated. And a lot of people are still getting routine testing. So the Rockies are under a routine testing protocol. Um, So you may see positives, but they're not going to get sick. The cases in, in Massachusetts, it's interesting. So those are 79 out of thousands of cases. Yeah. And we don't know for a fact that they died of COVID. We know they died with COVID, mm-hmm. but they could have had a heart attack completely unrelated to COVID. Um, so that I think that's an interesting um, um, caveat that we don't know. And we do we are starting to think that there are certain populations where the vaccine may be less effective than the general population. So people with weak immune systems, this has been in the news media a lot about whether they need an extra booster. We just don't know right now. But so, you know, they're they're investigating those cases to identify as their common thread where all of these people, they they all have a weak immune system. Were they taking medications to weaken their immune system or something else? So what I'm seeing and what I think most people are seeing are healthy people or people with even like comorbidities like lung disease or diabetes who have intact immune systems and are fully vaccinated, I'm just not seeing them in the hospital. I I really am not. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, we're grateful to Dr. Anuj Mehta, who's taken time out of his rounds as an ICU pulmonologist to check back in with us, specifically on the Delta variant. And uh, lest I give our listeners more weight to carry, should we be thinking about other variants besides Delta at this point? Yeah, there are other ones out there. The one in South America that's actually running rampant is Lambda. Um, so it's a Greek alphabet. Um, and there are going to be more. And the key thing is for those people that are unvaccinated, they're breeding grounds for new variants. So oh. not only does a va- uh, being vaccinated protect you from getting COVID, the unvaccinated population is where new variants arise, even if they don't get sick. So even more reason to get vaccinated, protect yourself, protect each other, protect your community, keep schools open keep our economy open. I really urge everybody to get vaccinated. And if you're not vaccinated, please wear a mask. I have heard some lawmakers say the choice of whether to be vaccinated is a personal choice. And while there are certainly personal considerations, what I think I hear you saying 
is that if you choose to be unvaccinated and you otherwise could be, you are contributing to the viral soup, the, the, the variant soup. I 100 percent agree with that statement. If you choose not to be vaccinated, I agree it's a personal choice. Um, then you are putting your community at risk. So do the next best thing and wear a mask. The next best thing. I wonder uh, if we could talk just a bit about that disparity you reflected on earlier geographically, um, mm-hmm. because it, it Delta is indeed causing a rise in the number of COVID cases in Colorado. In Larimer County, the seven-day case rate of Delta has doubled in less than a month. Mesa County has reported more than 600 cases of the variant. Um, And this is interesting. According to the state, the number of vaccinations dropped by more than 68% between the start and end of that vaccine lottery in which five Mm -hmm. people won a million dollars. The Denver Post reports that the decrease suggests the lottery didn't do much. The governor's office says the drop would have been even sharper without it. Uh, Are we at a point of of vaccine obstinance, as one University of Texas infectious disease specialist put it? I think um, there's data that there are two groups. There are the vaccine apathetic, meaning they're just not you know, so interested in it, you know, they would really need a kick in the pants to go get vaccinated, either a mandate from their employer, or really considering the ramifications for schools and and environments. And then the second group, I think, are, as you said, the vaccine obstinate. These are the hard nosed. These are the people that either have been COVID deniers all along, which again, I'm in the ICU, I am taking care of people in the ICU who are dying of COVID. Um, So it is real. Um, And, uh, or the people that, um, you know, are never going to get a vaccine of any type. And so that's the vaccine obstinate or what we call hard nose. There's a decent number of people that just need a little bit of a boost, you know, friends and family talking to them. Getting good information, I think, is critical. And so, I, you know, I applaud all the media outlets that, like CPR that are putting real good information out there um, and avoiding fake news, um, I think, is really critical to try and reach the people that can still be convinced. Um, and maybe what it'll take is really in um, people seeing the ramifications for schools and the economy um, come the fall. And that's that's my biggest concern is like people are going to face issues with um, potential um, classroom closures or if not school closures. And right, my wife and I can't function when our kids are not in school and my kids thrive in school and they need that to learn and grow. Um, and I know that's true for most parents and most kids. Mm. You hope the return to school is something of a fulcrum to get people into the vaccine. Can you just compare, contrast the ICU right now in terms of COVID cases with, say, you know, some of the previous waves? Yeah, Um, I can speak a little bit to my ICU and some of the others in in the Denver area. So Denver has higher vaccination rates. So we're by no means overwhelmed with COVID. We have a handful of COVID patients, which is good. Um, We are really busy, though. The hospital itself is really busy. We have, you know, we're facing 18 months of people who haven't gotten their routine care. And so they're coming to the hospital with other issues. um, And that's compounded by COVID. Um, COVID still affects our visitation policy, which is tough tough for family members. And, you know, the last thing I'll say about that is, you know, I work with the most amazing people, the nurses, my fellow physicians, our environmental service technicians are, you know, they're the most amazing people I could possibly imagine to work with. And everybody is tired. We're all burnt out from watching people that we couldn't help and saving the ones that we could. Um, and you know, the emotional toll of that continues to affect me every single day. So it's still with us, even though our 
numbers, say at Denver Health, are, are way lower than they were in the winter or in last spring. It's been suggested that a booster shot, a third dose of Moderna or Pfizer or a second of Johnson & Johnson, would perhaps be effective against Delta and other variants. Um, is that any closer on the horizon than the last time we talked? Well, um, you know, we're getting new information every day. I haven't seen any data to suggest that it's absolutely necessary or that it's not necessary. You know, since we talked, there was conflicting reports from Pfizer and then the FDA and the CDC. And I think all that reflects is we don't have good scientific data. Science takes time. And so as we learn more, we'll learn more about whether a booster is necessary. But just remember, being fully vaccinated with any of the three vaccines has high protection against Delta. And this is the question. The booster is more of a question about how long without protection last. I think it's really critical to say, if you read in the news that someone who is vaccinated has come down with COVID-19, that is not a reason to say vaccines don't work, I'm not going to get one. That's what I hear you saying. I think that's entirely correct. The vaccines keep people from getting sick. So yes, they vastly reduce the number of people that get COVID in general, um, but they are really effective, close to 100%, um, at preventing people from landing in the hospital and um, and ending up um, on a ventilator or with me taking care of them. You don't want to be in my ICU. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's very true. The vaccines are highly effective at that. Some people may still test positive. It's far less than if they had not been vaccinated. Um, but that's not a sign of vaccine failure. That's yeah. a sign of the fact that nothing's 100 percent, but other than keeping people from getting really sick. Thank you so much again, Dr. Mehta. I appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you so much, Ryan. ICU pulmonologist Dr. Anuj Mehta, who's on duty today and took some time to speak with us, has several affiliations, chiefly Denver Health. He has also helped advise the state on vaccine allocation. Let's continue the discussion now with CPR health reporter John Daly. Hi, John. Hey, Ryan. What struck you about what you heard there from Dr. Mehta? Well, uh, he talked about a two-track pandemic, uh, which is something that we've been seeing for months now. Uh, where it's a very different story in the places where you have high levels of vaccination, the the Denver area, for instance, uh, and the places where there's really lower uh, levels of vaccination. In Colorado, we've talked about the Mesa County uh, might be the the, the uh, most predominant or most uh, high profile example of that. And it's the same for states. Uh, there are states that have very high levels of vaccination, say the Northeast, which has excellent coverage, and then areas in the South, which don't. And, and we're seeing, you know, major outbreaks there, uh, places like Arkansas and Missouri, uh, lots of folks getting hospitalized, lots of people sick. So a two-track pandemic. The other thing that struck me uh, in your conversation with Dr. Mehta is that uh, back to school is going to be critical. The next uh, uh, few weeks and months, we're going to be talking about that a lot and uh, how to best protect kids. There's going to be a lot of questions from parents. Uh, remember, also, we're going to see uh, vaccine approval uh, coming for the 5- to 12-year-old age group. That's the next group uh, that's been uh, that's under review now. So we expect that in coming months. So that's going to give mm. some more uh, potential for that group to get vaccinated. And also, uh, we expect to see FDA approval, full approval of the vaccines, you know, how they're under emergency approval now. That'll be another important thing to watch coming up. Okay. I suppose it'll be a real question as to when younger and younger kids are eligible for the vaccine and to what extent that lines up with the school year. No doubt a story that CPR News will continue to cover. You recently reported on new numbers, John, that once again illustrate how the pandemic has exacerbated 
inequality. What did those numbers show exactly? Yeah, we keep uh, more and more studies keep coming out that that reaffirm this. The Colorado Health Institute tracked census level COVID-19 diagnoses in seven metro Denver counties, plus parts of Larimer and Weld. In the hardest hit places, the rate of COVID-19 diagnoses was 10 times greater than those neighborhoods that did the best. Wow. And, you know, what's perhaps most eye-opening is that a neighborhood with the highest concentrations of these diagnoses might be separated by just a 10-minute drive from a neighborhood largely untouched by the virus. And the trend held true outside of Denver, too, in places like Fort Lupton, which is east of Longmont, and neighborhoods south, north, and east of Greeley. It's like viral microclimates. Uh, What are the areas with these high diagnoses have in common? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. The data drilled down to consider three key underlying health indicators. In neighborhoods with higher numbers of COVID-19 diagnoses, a typical profile might be a big share of the population. Let's say a third of the people have less than a high school education. Most are people of color, and they live in homes where English is not spoken. And I want to note that this data was collected before widespread vaccination started and before the current spread of the more contagious Delta variant. Before Delta. What do researchers say are the key drivers of that higher COVID risk? I spoke with uh, Dr. Lilia Cervantes. She's a associate professor in the Department of Medicine at Denver Health. And she's examined these kind of disparities closely. She says these trends are driven essentially by people living in poverty and the jobs they have. Often there are more than two generations of family members within the same household. Many of them are part of the essential workforce. Many of them don't have the opportunity to work remotely from home. They have to use public transportation. And many of these individuals are also not given personal protective equipment at work. Can you give us an example of an area or two that have been hard hit, John? Sure. The Westwood neighborhood is southwest of downtown Denver. It had among the highest COVID-19 concentrations in the study. They rated from 195 to 266% of the average precinct or census tract in the study. And about nine in 10 residents there identify as non-white. Another example is Denver's Montbello neighborhood also had high concentrations of COVID in the study, 214% above the average uh, per precinct. Wow. And it uh, had the fewest high school graduates, only six out of 10 residents. And Contrast that with other neighborhoods nearby, like Central Park near Montbello or Platte Park, Cherry Hills, not far from Westwood. Uh, Those are mostly affluent white neighborhoods, and the difference there is very stark. The difference of just a few blocks, and yet it's miles apart. Thanks so much for being with us. You bet. CPR health reporter John Daly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Stick around. We're back in the next half hour. Something has shifted in the way we're all talking about cannabis legalization. This is about repairing harm that's been done to communities as a part of the failed war on drugs. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and I host On Something, a podcast all about life after marijuana legalization. This season, we're focusing entirely on the pitfalls along the path to social equity. Black and brown people are still getting arrested. On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
The reviews are in, and the great sand dunes are just a big mountain of sand. Yes, there are one-star online reviews of national parks, which artist Amber Scher found hilarious. So she started illustrating them in the style of travel posters. Her subpar parks project became a hit on Instagram. And now there's a book, America's Most Extraordinary National Parks and Their Least Impressed Visitors. And Amber, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Tell us about the first one-star review you saw. Um, Yeah, I was... (laughs) on Reddit and I was working on what my angle for a project illustrating the national parks would be. And I happened to see someone had like posted just a few one-star reviews. So I actually think the first one I saw was Yellowstone, save yourself some money, boil some water at home. (laughs) And um, (laughs) that just prompted me to look on Yelp and Google and see what other reviews people had left for parks. No doubt a reference to Old Faithful. I imagine so. Um, Yeah, but there are, I think, over a thousand or 10,000 thermal features in Yellowstone. So it could be any one of those. Yeah. You know, that's what I love about this book is as much as um, it highlights these one star reviews, it actually winds up teaching you a lot about each of these parks. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Why do you think that review struck you? I mean, the ones that that one, for example, and there are some that are also like that, that are just so like sassy and kind of ridiculous. Like you just can picture how angry you have to be that you're just like stewing over this experience you had. And then you come up with this zinger that you want to post online later. So I think that's why that one stood out to me in particular. And it's in such stark contrast to your own experience in national parks from your childhood, really, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of the biggest things that drew me into this project was just how someone could go to the exact same places that are these extremely fond memories for me and just be so incredibly underwhelmed. Do you have a favorite park from a childhood visit? Like, I always think of of Bryce and Zion uh, having the wind knocked out of me when I went there. Is there a park that gives you that feeling? Yeah, for me, it's definitely the Grand Canyon. We did a cross-country road trip uh, when I was a kid, and it just always stuck with me as this place that I was so curious about and interested in because if you've been there and really been in the park, you know that it's so much more than what you can see from the rim. So it just like sparked my curiosity immediately and it's always really stuck with me. Okay, let's contrast that with the one-star review of the Grand Canyon. Yes, the review that I used for <laughs> the book is um, a hole, a very, very, I think three varies, large hole. Um, and hole. I mean, if you only walk up to the rim, I can, I guess I can understand how that's the impression. If you just kind of walk up, look at it and leave, you don't really get a whole lot out of it. No pun intended. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it is so much more than that. So that review is particularly funny to me. Now, you mentioned Reddit. I'm curious where else people leave one-star reviews. Yeah, all the reviews I find are always on Yelp, which I was surprised to learn that there are Yelp profiles for some national parks. So Yelp, TripAdvisor, and Google are kind of the main places that I'll find reviews. What I found on Reddit was just someone had screenshotted reviews from like Google or Yelp. Um, Got it. Yeah. 
Three other national parks in Colorado appear in the new book. So we mentioned the Great Sand Dunes are just a big mountain of sand. Uh, the others are Black Canyon of the Gunnison, which is, quote, just not impressive. <laughs> Rocky Mountain National Park, super unimpressed. And Mesa Verde, not much to look at. Uh, that last one is especially hard to swallow, but... um. Why don't you describe your illustration for Black Canyon of the Gunnison? So for Black Canyon of the Gunnison, I focused on the sort of iconic view that you always see for that park, which is a view looking over the cliffside at Painted Wall, which has those beautiful striations of the different layers of rock that have been revealed over time. And I've never been there in person, but even just the pictures were so awe-inspiring. I mean, like nothing I've ever seen. I actually have a good friend who just did a road trip with her family and they went and she sent me a picture and was like, oh, just really not impressive. But I mean, they <laughs> obviously loved it a ton. And so, I mean, it's somewhere on my bucket list. So I kind of can't believe that people have been so unimpressed by it. It's funny because you've jumped to the end of my script. I was going to ask you in a parting question if there are national parks in the U.S. you haven't visited yet. And uh, so the answer is yes. And, and Black Canyon is one of them. Yeah, I've actually only been to, I think I've added it up and it's about a third of the the 63 national parks, um, which people always ask. And to me, it's sort of funny because I don't need to have been to these places to know how ridiculous these reviews are. Uh-huh. And I just have a general appreciation for all of the different parks and the different geography in America. So it's just pretty wild to me that someone would think that about these places. I want to go back to this idea that the book teaches you a lot about uh, these places. The Great Sand Dunes National Park, for instance, is not just sand, even though that is in its name. You, you write about how diverse a landscape that is. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of the thing that a lot of people don't understand about many parks is there's so much more to them than even the iconic view that you're going to get. You know, they're often very large. There's a lot to explore. Um, Great Sand Dunes has, it's not just sand. There is actually a ton of plant life there. I know one of the big activities in the park is to like ride on, like sled on the dunes and whatnot. And you have to be careful when you're doing that to do it in areas where you're not going to damage some of the more fragile landscape. And obviously there's just the backdrop of mountains behind the dunes uh, where all that sand kind of comes and washes down from. So there's really just a lot to see in some of these parks that go beyond what it's named for. You write that uh, the Great Sand Dunes are the tallest sand dunes in all of North America at 750 feet, and that the larger park includes wetlands, alpine lakes, tundra, spruce, pine forests, grasslands. And of course, there are those NASA rover tests because it's so (laughs) otherworldly there. The cliff dwellings at Mesa Verde are well known. Uh, It was interesting. You write there are some 5,000 archaeological sites in the park. I think that's another one where people see the one set of cliff dwellings kind of nestled under that huge cliffside. And they think that's all there. And that's, I think, the biggest sort of collection altogether in one spot. But, you know, there's a lot of hiking and places to see throughout the park. So it's not just something you just kind of walk up, look at one thing and leave. Why is the park called Mesa Verde, which translates as green table? Uh, It's because there just is so much greenery there. Um, I think a lot of people think in places like that with these stark cliffs that there's not going to be a lot of, you know, green space. 
but there are just tons of junipers and pinion trees. So it is much more green than you might think, um, thinking of like rocky cliff dwellings. You also write that it's the first park of its kind dedicated to man-made, human-made creations, not just natural wonders. That sets Mesa Verde apart. Have you ever been able to meet a reviewer whose feedback you illustrated, Amber Share? I have not. And I think the thing is that a lot of people probably don't even remember that they wrote these things <laughs> because usually what I'm pulling is just one little sentence or phrase from the review. It's not the whole review. Oh. And so if you think of things you've said years ago and someone pulled one phrase out of it, you probably wouldn't remember that you said that. Yeah, so I think a lot of people don't know that it's them. <laughs> Do you think now that you've started Subpar Parks and it's taken off in a big way, are you going to be wary of any future reviews you see? Like, um, there's this like famous gallon of milk on Amazon. Do you know about this? That people review no. and they do it poetically. Oh. <laughs> and it's just become this like storehouse for people's poetry about this very prosaic item. Anyway, do you think that people do this tongue in cheek in some ways? Oh, definitely. Um, they do. When I started the project, I was pretty careful to just try. I made an honest effort to make sure the reviews I pulled were seemingly legitimate. I'm sure a couple of more snarky, sarcastic ones made it in my artwork. But the key thing now, because it has inspired so many people to obviously leave fake bad reviews to try to like get on a poster, I only use reviews that are old enough that they predate the project. Huh. So that, they have a much higher likelihood of being authentic. You write in the introduction that this project, Subpar Parks, has grown beyond its original snarky premise into a wonderful community. What do you mean by that? I thought when I started it, like, oh, this will be kind of a funny, almost like meme type of thing that people might enjoy really quickly and move on with their day. But it's really turned into this huge community of people from around the entire world, really, who are constantly like sending me stories about their time in the parks and photos and coming together even in the comments section to just share their experiences in these places that also stand in stark contrast to the review. How did that feel in quarantine to have that connection? Yeah, I think that was one of the most beautiful parts of the project was, you know, and it was pure coincidental timing. I couldn't have planned it that way if I tried. But I think in its own way, it gave people a nice outlet to also laugh, first of all, at a time when the world was in really rough shape, but just come together when we all couldn't travel and reminisce and kind of love on some of our favorite places in the world. I understand that you've wanted to be an artist since you were little, but you didn't necessarily see a path towards a full-time gig. Has Subpar Parks allowed you to pursue art full-time? Yeah, it has. Um, so actually last March, I quit my job to work on Subpar Parks full-time. This is pretty much all I do now. I do still do some other freelance work and things like that, but Subpar Parks is kind of the main thing now for me. So it's been pretty wild. Well, congratulations. Amber, thank you so much for being with us. I'll make sure to leave a review of this interview afterwards. 
<laughs> Thank you. Oh, I think it's five stars. Amber Share of Raleigh, North Carolina, is the creator of Subpar Parks. She illustrates one-star online reviews of national parks. The project's been a hit on Instagram. Now it's a book of the same name. And speaking of names... The front range is a term you'll hear a lot in Colorado. It's in weather forecasts. A community college carries the name. It also had Coloradans wondering with questions we got last year. I'm Hank Troy, and I live in Denver, and I've been here for 50 years or more, and I've always wondered what the front range is. Is it a mountain range, or is it range like home on the range? Lauren Law of Evergreen is a more recent arrival. She, too, reached out through Colorado Wonders about the term front range. I hear the weathermen talking about it, weather women, and I just don't quite know where I live. And judging by the responses I got on Twitter, there's not widespread agreement. I asked people to draw a map of what they think of as the front range. One person jokingly sent us photos of his stovetop pointing to the front range. More serious replies included the urban corridor from Fort Collins to Pueblo. Others stopped at Colorado Springs. Some excluded the metros, designating a swath of mountain communities from Estes Park down to Woodland Park. I asked Lauren and Hank for their theories. To me, being new to Colorado over the past four years, it seemed like it was just that front face of the mountains that you could first see when you were leaving Denver, more geographical. Do you think in Evergreen that you live on, along, inside the Front Range? I guess I have. I I think it sounds cool if you live in the Front Range. I kind of feel like I do. Okay, you feel a part of the Front Range in Evergreen. Hank, you're in Denver. I'm in Denver. Do you feel like a Front Ranger? (laughs) Not particularly. (laughs) (laughs) How do you define the term for yourself? Well, I keep hearing that it's all up and down the Front Range, so I'm imagining Perhaps it's from Fort Collins down to Pueblo. I mean, is that the front range all the way up and down? I don't know. Well, Lauren, Hank, I'd like you to meet Sam Bach, who is public historian here at History Colorado, where you've agreed to meet us. Hi, Sam. Hi, Ryan. And you have been doing some digging. I sure have. What did you find? I found out that the front range, the geographical designation of the mountain range, is actually from about Laramie down to Colorado Springs. It doesn't usually include Pueblo. It ends right around the Pikes Peak group. Laramie, Wyoming, down to Colorado Springs. And what do you base this on, Sam? So we base this on the records of the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. This is the group that was founded in the 1890s to put names to things throughout the country. The first use, the first official use that we could track down of the term front range was in the Hayden survey from 1873. 1873. Is the Hayden survey a kind of expedition? Yeah, this guy Ferdinand V. Hayden led this expedition to Colorado in 1873. And They really were one of the first groups to come in and put official names on things that stuck. They decided that front range was descriptive. If you come from the east, it's the first range you come to. It's the front range. Now, this is interesting. On Twitter, there was a lot of talk about the idea of the front range coming from an eastern perspective. Mm -hmm. A lot of people on the western slope, who also think the west slope is the best slope, don't love the idea of being thought of as the back range, for instance. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty common sentiment. Ari Armstrong of Westminster tweets, My father, who lives in Palisade, says the west side is the front range and Denver is on the back range. 
Nick Johnson points out, well, the first white immigrants came from the east, so eastern slope mountains of course became front. And Mark Cavanaugh adds that if you're from the western slope, the front range is that place that takes your water away and then takes it for granted. <laughs> uh, okay, so this expedition comes along and that's the first reference to the term. Yeah, and they really use the term front range and Colorado range interchangeably in their report. The official designation of Front Range as the name for the mountains that run from Laramie to Colorado Springs came in 1891 when the U.S. Board of Geographic Names decided that Front Range was more descriptive than Colorado Range. And so they officially designated it in that year. Okay, so this is an official term. Mm -hmm. And does it include just the foothills or also the high mountains along that stretch? It includes the Indian Peaks and Long's Peak. Those are the highest points in the range. It also includes Pikes Peak and the group of mountains that are down there. If you get a little further to the west, the mountains up by Summit County, those are in a whole different range. So Sam, we're talking mountain range here, right? We're not talking about the range like Homo on the range. That's right. Yeah, it's really the geographical features, the foothills and the mountains that make up this mountain range. I think it's fair to say that the meaning of front range has grown and sort of is molded like clay by each individual. Do you have that sense, Sam? You know, I think there's a degree of that, but in the 1970s, you start seeing reporters, weather people referring to the communities, the cities along that range, that mountain range, as the front range. And so 1973, the U.S. Board on Geographic Names actually gets a letter from someone living in Denver asking, you know, all these reporters and weather people are referring to this as the front range. Is that correct? And the board says, well, technically the term refers just to the geographic features, but you can use the term however you want. And so since then, it's really come into common use, you know, as individuals understand this region needs its own name. So that sounds awesome, Sam. You have some sort of letters, some documentation. Can we take a look at that? Yeah, so Mary Kidd of Golden wrote in to ask about this usage of the term front range to refer to the towns. And what she asks is, question about the location of the front range in Colorado. Is the location shown on your map correct? Route County is west of what is generally considered front range hereabouts. And the U.S. Board and Geographic Names writes back to her and says, in effect, yes, you are correct that the boundary of the front range is really refers to the mountain ranges and not the communities around, and that it could be confusing to residents in the foothills west of Denver. Yes, but in thinking about this, I can't imagine someone who lives around Indian Peaks or Long's Peak or in Nederland or Estes Park thinks of themselves as living on the front range. So to be extra clear, what is the northern, southern, eastern, and western boundaries of the Front Range. Yeah, so the Front Range really technically extends from about Laramie in the north to about Canyon City in the south to around Idaho Springs or even Georgetown on the west and then to Golden on the east. Okay, Haley Littleton of Breckenridge got this spot on. She says the western edge is Idaho Springs, where the traffic starts. <laughs> and she's about right. Yeah, okay. she sure is. You were raising your hands in joy, Lauren. Well, because now I know I'm just probably eight miles past Evergreen towards Idaho Springs, and now I know I live on the front range. You are a front yes, ranger. Just to reflect on something Becky Boyle of Boulder told us on Twitter, in a way, this is also a cultural 
division. People thinking of themselves as being on the front range or perhaps the western slope. I think, Sam, you can answer the geographic aspect of this as an open and shut case, but the identity part feels so much more squishy to me. I think it's really up to each individual to decide whether they're from the front range or whether they're from somewhere else. That is public historian Sam Bach of History Colorado helping us answer Colorado Wonders questions in March of last year about the front range. Thanks as well to Lauren Law of Evergreen and Hank Troy of Denver. So what makes you wonder in Colorado? Let us know at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Again, that's CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Mountain real estate is hot, which squeezes out the working class. CPR's Nathaniel Miner files this report from Gunnison. Good afternoon, Gunnison Real Estate and Rentals. This is Erin. The phone has been ringing a lot at Kelly McInnes' real estate office. She manages about 200 rental properties in Gunnison. And for a long time, this city was an affordable place to live for people who worked in Crested Butte, about 30 minutes away. But that's changing. People are feverishly looking for rentals and trying to find any kind of avenue to try to get their foot in the door. Affordable rentals are nearly extinct. Online message boards are full of people desperate to find a place. I haven't seen it this bad in years and years, probably never. You know, last year it was tight because people weren't moving. But this year, people now that they can move, we're seeing influx of people come in from out of the area. McKinnis says Gunnison is newly popular with remote workers and wealthy second homeowners. Doug Campbell is a CEO of a battery company based on the Front Range. He just bought a place in town. We're fortunate enough that we could have, it would have been a stretch, but we could have purchased something in Crested Butte, but that just doesn't appeal to me. The community of Gunnison is, is what's always appealed to me. Campbell says he loves to ski and mountain bike, but didn't want to live in a classic resort town, and Gunnison fit the bill. McKinnis says it's second homeowners like Campbell that are pushing home prices up and out of reach of many locals. And higher home prices have another impact. McKinnis says landlords up and down the Gunnison Valley are cashing in and selling off their rental properties and booting their tenants. That happened to Adam Maestel last summer. He didn't think it would be a big deal to find a new place, but it was. And I wish I'd planned ahead a little because there was nothing. Maestel says he moved here in his mid-20s from West Virginia and fell in love with the valley. Now, many of his friends and even some longtime Gunnison locals have been forced out. He's been sleeping in his car for months and says he'll leave the valley if he doesn't find a place by the end of the summer. I thought I had where I was going to live, where I was going to raise kids, um, where I was going to build a house. And now I have no idea what to do. And I feel like I'm afraid to commit to anything anywhere because it'll be the wrong decision no matter what I do. I feel like if I stay, it'll be the wrong decision. If I go, it'll be the wrong decision. And now I just feel like I'm lost. New, wealthier residents are one reason Gunnison is more expensive. Maisel also blames vacation rentals for taking away housing stock for locals. And he thinks local governments should crack down on it more. Overall, a recent housing assessment report says the Valley needs about 1,000 new housing units. Gunnison Mayor Jim Gelwicks says the city is focusing on building new homes. The city has plans for an entirely new neighborhood with 1,700 housing units. 
but it takes time, money, and investors to put in new streets, pipes, and other infrastructure. It's not something where you can put it all in and put it on the first guy who builds a house out there and say, hey, you now own a 400-square-foot house that only cost you $40 million. Doug Campbell, the CEO second homeowner, says he's thought about his impact on his new community. And that's one reason why he rents his adjoining apartment to a full-time Gunnison rental, not to tourists on Airbnb. But, you know, at the end of the day, one individual, one homeowner, there's only so much you can do. Adam Maystill isn't ready to give up on the Gunnison Valley yet. He says he and some friends want to buy an empty plot of land out of town and put a bunch of RVs on it. There might be some legal issues to work out with that. But Maystill says if he's going to sleep in a vehicle, it'd be nice to do it on his own land. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And CPR reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis contributed to that report. The pandemic meant that Colorado Matters couldn't hit the road like we used to, but we are preparing to be on the road again. In late August, our team will visit six spots, Rocky Ford, Colorado Springs, Fort Morgan, Grand Junction, the Four Corners, and Alamosa. If you know those places well, we'd love your story ideas. Head over to CPR.org slash roadtrip to see the map and to give us your input. That's CPR.org slash roadtrip. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the team that keeps us trucking. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.